All right, Inquiring Minds want to know, the podcasting equipment that you sold off, did it go towards weed money or wine money? I feel like I should plead the fifth on this one, because my <laughs> wife is going to listen. Um, it's, it's all legal it's all up here now. It's all in the closet, you know? to be honest. It's just in the back. That, like I said, that's that's weed money or wine money right there. It's just waiting to be collected. Right, right. I'll, I'll wait for a rainy day. Exactly. <laughs> when things get really dire, you know, like that, that could also be like groceries. I knew that eventually the matinee cast would come calling, so I saved all that stuff. So here I am. <laughs> you lying bastard. Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 208 of the Matinee Cast. It's a movie-loving podcast on my movie-loving website, thematinee.ca, your home for cinematic passion and perspective. Pretty soon, I'm going to begin my 10th year of podcasting, which is both pretty cool and pretty scary, depending on the moment. At such a point in time, it's natural to look around and ask oneself, how did I get here? Who led one to find one where oneself is? If I ask myself that question in terms of podcasting, there are a lot of answers. Unlikely famous people like Ricky Gervais, institutions that remain like film spotting, enthusiasts both solo and in groups that have come and gone through the years, and certain specific friends that kindled the podcasting fire inside of me, tended to that flame, and sometimes tossed something rich into the hearth and got that fire burning brighter. Today's guest is one of the latter. He is a voice that I could pick out of Dodger Stadium. Uh, he has given me so many great ideas over the years and been a guest on so many great shows and has become a personal friend um, who was nice enough to host me on my only visit ever to Minneapolis um, and who I do hope uh, will return to Toronto so we can break bread sometime. He was once the big cheese at Row 3 and the Row 3 Cinecast. Nowadays, he can just be found moving about in new circles in Minneapolis, Minnesota, talking to his friends directly about the films he loves which has got to really annoy the shit out of them andrew james is here how are you andrew james i'm doing well man thanks for that intro <laughs> no problem do you find a, a void with with not no certainly I, I imagine the lack of work to produce the show is probably a welcome switch but do you miss the actual conversation uh yeah i, I totally do like i'll see something great and then go who am I going to tell about this? Like, I'll put it, I'll put it on Letterbox or whatever, but that's just a bunch of no names. Yeah, that follow me on there. So I, I have a Slack conversation with a few friends, but Ooh. they don't care. You know, <laughs> really, they're all busy. They're not going to fifteen movies a month like the I, rest of us. So, I, I gotta be, I gotta believe that's how all of these podcasts got started. It's just like we want to talk about these things, and we know these people care about this shit. I, I think so. Yeah. Totally. Yep. Well. On episode 208, we will be discussing First Man. We'll be flipping the record over to play the other side. First, we need to learn more about Andrew. This is Know Your Enemy. Get comfy, people. Andrew is a six-time guest. His first appearance was on episode 27, where we talked about The Fighter. We learned the first movie he'd seen in theaters was Star Wars A New Hope. The last film he'd seen at the time was The Social Network. The worst film he'd ever seen was Silent Night, Deadly Night Part 2. The unseen classic essential was Singing in the Rain, which he has since seen. And the film he wished he'd made is 28 Days Later. He then returned episode 73, Killing Them Softly. We learn the film that he digs and nobody else does is The Core. The film everybody else likes that he doesn't is Bridesmaids. The last movie to make him cry was 50-50. In the movie of his life, he'd be played by Kate Winslet. And next, he was going to watch Something Wild. 
Then Andrew returned on episode 117. We talked about Boyhood. We learned the film that made his love of film turn a corner was A Clockwork Orange. His first date movie was Chances Are. His sick day movie is Jumper. The film that left him speechless was Captain Phillips. And his epitaph would be, be excellent to each other and party on, dudes. Then on episode 149, the epic Force Awakens episode, we learn the film he really digs but never wants to see again is Elephant. The film that genuinely freaked him out was Invasion of the Body Snatchers. The film that always makes him laugh is The Birdcage. The soundtrack that is his favorite is Pulp Fiction. And the film he loves but nobody else really has heard of is Shinobi Heart Under Blade. Finally, on episode 183, which we recorded last summer about Logan Lucky, we learned that when he goes to the cinema, he sits in the third row. If he could go on a date with any movie character, he would like to go out with Scott Donlin from Best in Show. The dirtiest film he'd ever seen is 52 Pickup. His favorite black and white movie is Dr. Strangelove. And the film he digs that nobody would expect him to dig is Transformers 3. Okay. Time for me to stop talking and Andrew for you to take over a little bit. You know, it's funny when I get to the five timers and six timers and four and even some of the four timers, the show grows longer just because it takes me longer to recap this stuff. Yeah, I'm going to have to keep that little bit. That, you just recap my life. So I'm going to have to <laughs> just put, put that somewhere. Yeah, keep that audio track somewhere. Yeah, on your, just put yeah. it on my digital like business card. Yeah, yeah, just here. Here's everything about me <laughs> in one little thing. All right, Andrew. Round six. In home or at the theater, what is your movie snack of choice? I don't really eat snacks, but I always do bring caffeine with me. So usually like a can of NOS. Or monster or something, uh, yeah. That's one thing that Kurt and I have. Um, like he brings in coffee, I bring in nos, and we just caffeinate ourselves. What is nos? It's it's a sugary energy drink, like you know, like monster. Red oh, milk. okay, one of those. Okay, I just drink nos because it reminds me of past beer. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I like. I'm I'm with you on the whole desire for caffeine during a movie uh especially like i lately i've been going and seeing movies i've been kind of going to like a late week late show like i'll go to like a ten thirty show on a thursday um it's just it's you know something kind of neat to do at the end of the week and i can walk to the movie theater from our place i'm for those ones i'm usually drinking a tea or a coffee just because it's kind of late and i don't want to drift off um but I, yeah you're you're not the first person to say i don't eat during and it's it's kind of it's amusing me more and more. I, I guess I, I thought that more of us ate, at least at home, if not in the theater, when we were watching these things. It does get expensive, but I, I guess I thought more of us were snackers. I guess, okay, I didn't really think about the fact that at home, sure, at home, I chow down on anything I can find in the, the cupboard, I guess, but in the theater. Oh. Yeah, another. Ah, okay, so, so a caffeinated drink that's... Uh, you know something something that uh, Vin Diesel would be would be rocking. All right, uh, nice. Um, what is a movie world, a movie universe, movie sphere that you would like to spend a day in if you could? I think maybe this is kind of a weird answer, but like the any zombie world, Dawn of the Dead what? comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. Are you kidding me? Why? I'm not kidding. I went through this stuff, and I'm like, okay. First of all, most movies are just in the world. So I was sure. looking for stuff that's like, you know, Star Wars is a little too obvious. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be in the 28 Days Later world with the fast zombies, but the old Dawn of the Dead, uh, Night of the Dead, those, I've always wanted to do 
part of the zombie apocalypse. Oh man! And try to survive, experience it, play around. Absolutely. I couldn't even fathom that just because every one of those shows and movies and and games and stories I watch, it's it's almost like you're all just kind of hanging out to die. I think the only one like that that I could say, okay, yeah, sure, here you're on to something is uh is maybe warm bodies because at that point we know that the zombies kind of have come back around the other side but any of these other ones i would just be like way too paranoid that that somebody is just gonna either bump me off or do something stupid why in the world would you want to hang out there well that's the thing is i'll grant you that in these movies people do stupid things but i would be prepared also you also said a day in okay so oh, a day i, I can you know, all right. Like yeah, Shaun of the Dead. Think, think of yourself in Shaun okay, of the Dead. Okay. Okay. It could be fun. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And if you prepare yourself and know what you're doing in a zombie apocalypse, right? Kind of be fun for a day. For a day. Okay. That's so you're you're playing the uh, you're playing the loophole there. I hadn't thought about that. I was thinking more of the world. You're saying no. It's the day in the world. Once midnight <laughs> yeah, comes, I was your question was. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I like that. All right. Um, next, what is your favorite good scene in a bad movie? Uh, I went with the the actual Thunderdome fight in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> Why? Well, it's one of the things I liked about that scene is, um, well, part of it's nostalgia. I really liked it as a kid. Mm-hmm. But also, um, it's just got a really cool setting. So if you haven't seen the movie, it's two guys fighting, and it's like this big steel dome. And what's cool about it, though, is that the guys that are fighting are connected to these like long bungees that go to the ceiling so they can jump up really high and kind of flip over each other and just do some interesting maneuvers. But then there's all these different types of weapons connected to the top of the dome that they can reach up and grab. Uh, so like a, a giant hammer or a spear or a chainsaw and all these different things, and then they fight it out. And also I forgot one of the kind of the cool things is the audience that is watching it are mm-hmm. all clung to the outside of the dome. So they're oh, like right, right there and can kind of interact with the fighters too. So you've got all that elements. Plus it's just, it's Mad Max who's pretty cool. And then the guy he's fighting against is an interesting character. And then uh, like the, how the fight concludes is also pretty interesting. I thought so. I mean, the thing that you're kind of making me think of, that's the first time for this answer that we've gone with an action movie and it's been uh, like a, a, an action scene is there's, it, it kind of trickles back to your appreciation of Michael Bay, where there can be some really dumb movies as like a long experience, but they have some fun things within them that stay fun, no matter how much your perception of the other shit changes. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, so like it's, it's, it's that with Mad Max, like you watch Thunderdome now and especially kind of in light of seeing everybody do it again with Fury Road and seeing how much better it could be um, and, and, and yeah you you end up saying no this this movie is actually pretty shitty when we're watching it as, as grown ups and we're watching it in the cold light of day but this sequence like this fight or this chase or this whatever this heist is still pretty badass so it's, it's, it's weird because it's the one part of dumb cinema that can endure yeah uh, totally and i was actually trying to come up with um i don't know i guess to, to use your analogy like smart cinema or a dialogue scene 
and I'm sure they're out there. I just couldn't, I couldn't really come up with anything that I really liked from a movie that I don't like in terms of like a dialogue scene. Yeah, yeah. So, no, but I, no I, I, I like this one a lot better. And also just it kind of I, – I like that it reminds me of going back to those action movies that we used to love as kids and rewatching them and saying, eh, you know, this doesn't hold up Not the so same good, way yeah. that I think it does. <laughs> All right. Uh, Andrew, what is the most violent movie you've ever seen? Let me ask you quickly a yes or no question. Has Kurt Affeard answered this question? He has. Okay. Then I'm going to go, because I know what his answer is, I think. Uh, I actually was trying to find something that's... There's tons of violent movies I've seen. I was trying to find one that's truly violent, but not, um, like, cartoony. So not, like, Kill Bill. Kill Bill is crazy violent, but it's not really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Passion of the Christ is extremely violent. Okay. And pretty serious. Um, it, it's you know what the crazy thing is is that I I almost feel like it's been you know fourteen years since that movie I kind of feel like a lot of people have forgotten all about it. I think so too. I've always been meaning to go back and rewatch it. Yeah. Um, because I I like Mel Gibson's direction, but that's the one I haven't really gone back to. Yeah, me neither. Um, like Apocalypto uh, is pretty violent too. Um, it's an amazing movie, but I remember Passion of the Christ. Actually, like I'm not a particularly religious person, but. Right. Those scenes are harsh. Yeah, yeah, and it, well, it's it's the it's the length of time with the whole thing, right? Like, it's if if you were to write down what happened to Christ and say, "All right, let's do it all to time," then it feels like Mel Gibson basically gives the whole thing like he doesn't cut from any of it. He's like, "All right, he got thirty nine lashes. You're gonna hit him thirty nine times." Mm-hmm. Um, it's. Um, and it's not with like just a leather whip like in the proposition. It's got like little barbed hooks on it that are just ripping away flesh. Yeah. Um and you see it all and it's it's not cartoony at all. It's pretty hardcore. Yeah. It was um it was one of the things that uh when that movie came out, I remember saying if you think about the actual physical logistics of a crucifixion, right? Like yeah. not just oh yeah, the guy died on the cross. Like if you think about the actual putting nails through a body and how much force that would take and how long that would oh, take and yeah. everything. It's yep. like, yeah, then, then you're not going to be shocked. But if you've never actually put 10 seconds and, and thought, holy crap, that would actually like, like literally really kill uh, yeah. that, then, <laughs> then yeah, it's, it was, it would be just absolutely shocking at the time. I, yeah, I, it's, I, I remember watching that and I think I watched that one by myself and just remember thinking this is going on a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it lasts a good chunk of that movie if I remember right. Yeah, and it's 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 yeah. more the it's more the whipping than it is the the nails. Yeah, yep, so, all the stuff yeah leading up to it. Yeah. So, um, so let me was Kurt Halfyard's answer RoboCop? No, no, oh. his answer wasn't RoboCop. It was something oh. altogether different. Um, I thought for sure it would be RoboCop because that was that's the other one for me. Yeah, um, that that remains a pretty violent movie. Actually, I mean, again, mm-hmm. again, it's kind of cartoony, but it's it's very. That one's. I remember that one being gross. When I was a kid, like I first saw it in what eighty nine or whatever, whenever it came out. Yeah, it's it's. I I hadn't seen anything like that when I was a kid. Like that guy when he gets his hand blown off in the yeah. beginning, and yeah, um, yeah, it's super violent. It's a little cartoony, but it's also. Something icky about it too. 
That's around the time in the 80s where every action movie and every comic book and every TV show is sort of trying to outdo one another. Like that, sure. that's, that's around the point where everything was getting bigger and bloodier and scarier. The horror movies were getting more visceral. Um, so that, that kind of, it's, it's almost right at its peak with something like Robocop. So, I mean, uh, they're, they're both great answers for, for totally different reasons. Like one being, you know, silly entertainment that gets carried too far. The other one trying to make a point. Yeah. So good answers. Uh, and apparently you're going to take this answer to its full conclusion. What is a movie monologue you would like to deliver? Good morning. In less than an hour, aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. Mankind. That word should have new meaning for all of us today. We can't be consumed by our petty differences anymore. We will be united in our common interests. Perhaps it's fate that today is the 4th of July. And you will once again be fighting for our freedom. Not from tyranny, oppression, or persecution, but from annihilation. We are fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win the day, the 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. I had to mute my mic because after you got past good morning, I knew exactly where you're going with that. And I just kind of couldn't stop laughing. I, um, well, I, you know, I love independence day. Everybody <laughs> thinks I'm this big blockbuster who listens to your show probably thinks I'm this big blockbuster junk food cinema guy. And I'm no, totally no. not, but no, no, you're, um, you're the, you could have a conversation about, you know, the ins and outs of Lars von Trier with the best of them. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely can. Yeah. But, this stuff is fun to me. This is a monologue I've always wanted to recite, and I would never get a chance unless I'm on the matinee cast. So, <laughs> now I have to tell you, I, if you look on YouTube, maybe somewhere you can find it. Some guy, as his best man speech at a wedding, stood up and gave this, and it was it was wonderful. The audience just thought it was hilarious. Um, it had no context at all. You're, yeah. you're, it's a wedding, a best man speech, and he gives word for word what I just said. It's pretty great. It's a great That's, little model. <laughs> that is an amazing trick. I mean, I don't think I'm going to be tapped to be a best man ever again. But if I if I am, I should like kind of start mm. that and go like, oh, I'm sorry, wrong speech. Sorry, sorry, everybody. Sorry, because yeah. <laughs> it takes a certain moment to pull that off correctly. I think it's yes. kind of weird. But. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that that is awesome. I I mean, you know, like the thing I love about that is it's one of those, um, you know, like. Henry V, St. Crispin's Day speeches that you get in movies every now and then. Like, you know, we were talking about Gibson before, and there's a similar speech in Braveheart, the whole freedom yep. speech. Um, it's really sad when that speech goes badly. Like, I've seen some movies where that's supposed to be, like, the big rah-rah rallying moment, and, like, the actor can't actually pull it off. Mm -hmm. Oh, so. yeah, and then it's just it's the opposite of good. It's yeah. really brutal. It's when like, it awkward. Work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> All right. Well, that's uh, that's round six with Andrew James. Uh, I'm now officially under the gun to start a seventh round of questions because we're creeping up towards the end of the year, and I'm going to be getting some of these six timers back for a seventh time in 2019. So, hey, if you have ideas for questions that I should ask in 2019 on the matinee cast, please send them in because I'm running really low on material. For now, though, it's time to forward along to the new slang. And the new slang in episode 208 is First Man. We'll be right back to talk about it after this. One second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh-oh. I want to go. Please, don't show me in the out of school. Oh, please. please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh-oh. I don't want to go. Please, don't show me in the out of school. First Man is directed by Damien Chazelle. It stars Ryan Gosling, Claire Foy, Kyle Chandler, and Jason Clark, among a whole host of others. Short and sweet, First Man is the story of the NASA mission to land the Apollo 11 on the moon in July of 1969. But more so than that, all of the trials and missions that led up to it uh, through the 60s in the Gemini program, uh, which were sometimes successful, sometimes not successful, um, all of it with Neil Armstrong front and center. A movie like this is often about the stakes. We in the audience are supposed to be invested in just how much is on the line and the massive cost that might come due if a plan happens to fail. With First Man, we don't really have that. We have the story of arguably the most famous American astronaut in history in the run-up to a mission that we know succeeded. So pop quiz, Hotshot. Is there enough going on in this movie to overcome a lack of narrative stakes? Not for me. Uh, I, I seem to be in a pretty small minority where um, I, I just didn't... First of all, I didn't know the movie that I was going to see. I thought I was going to see a different movie than I saw. And I was never really fully invested in the stakes that are there because the stakes that are there are, as you mentioned, not really gone over in terms of, like what NASA went through, what the what the public went through. There's a little bit there. It, all the stakes are, just, like, I guess his mental well-being and family life. I want to back up for a second and kind of put a qualifier in this one because you mentioned Kurt Halfyard early on in the show, and when I was talking to him that you were coming on this show, he said, oh, that's actually a perfect idea because Andrew's got, like, NASA in his veins. <laughs> Yeah, that's I, I wouldn't go that far, but yeah, I mean, I was an astronomy major for a while until I couldn't hack the math. Um, I love maybe later we'll talk about some of these other movies that tackle the uh, the Apollo missions and and NASA in general. So yeah, I love that Apollo thirteen. Obviously, is sort of an analog to this movie. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I thought I was going to see. Okay, and that's not what this movie. Like, watch the trailer. And then realize that that is not the movie you're going to see after yeah, that trailer. Yeah. This is like Wannabe Tree of Life um, mm-hmm. more than it is Apollo 13. Yep. And I am with you on this, actually. I was, I'm not, I wouldn't, this is not for me a bad movie, but this is a movie that feels really misguided and doesn't understand that the big payoff at the end of this movie is something that everybody and their brother already knows. Now, it's, you know, to, to steal, to, to kind of paraphrase the line from 
Star Trek, it's like trying to hit a bullet with another bullet while blindfolded riding a horse. That's actually <laughs> what landing the eagle on the moon would require, right? Like a lot of right. besides the fact that they had never done this before, it was just the math on it was so intricately difficult. So on the surface, there should be a whole lot of tension about whether or not they're going to be able to do it, but of course we know they do. So yeah. you need then, if you're not going to be able to hang your movie on whether or not this is possible and have your audience just completely buy into it, you need to uh, move your your the crux of your tale to something else, to something emotional, to something uh, you know, um, risky, something dangerous. And this film doesn't, this script doesn't feel like it can do that. There's death on the mind in this movie. For the love of God, there is death on the mind. Like it opens with a death. Several people die throughout the course of the, sh the course of the film, and it it seems to have grief on the brain, but never actually allows that grief a moment to truly breathe. You know, there's a there's a moment in this movie where um, Neil Armstrong's wife uh, is talking to one of the other astronauts and he asks, she asks him, I think it's when Janet is talking to Ed White, the the Jason Clark character. And mm -hmm. she, she mentions how Neil has always been affected by the, the death of their young daughter who we see her pass away early on in this movie. Um, and, and Janet asks him, has he ever talked about our daughter to you? And, uh, and Ed White says, well, no. Has he ever talked about her to you? And Janet says, "Well, no, not really." And I'm, I'm in that moment. I'm thinking, "Hold on a second. That's right. You know, like in the course of this movie, like they they never so much as had a conversation about this. And I don't know. Maybe Neil Armstrong and Janet never actually had a conversation about their daughter. That that's entirely possible. That they just sure. were making stuff up. But that's the kind of thing that this movie could have used to fuel it. It can't just be." you know, literally ghosts hanging around this movie. So it needs to be something more. Yeah. You, you actually nailed it. Like if I were to, um, synopsize, synopsize this movie, yep. it's one man's struggle, um, with coming to grips with the death of his daughter. And in order to let it go, he needs to get to the moon. Yeah. That's what this movie is. Yeah. Um, with a bunch of ragtag stuff thrown in the middle, like here's 10 years, uh, all condensed into two hours. Like, Two hours, um, yeah. and I kind of, I kind of find that interesting. Actually, like that's fine. I, I like, I like this idea of Neil Armstrong is really struggling um, with the death of his daughter, um, and he can't always talk. A lot, a lot of couples are like this that lose kids. Um, they can't, they can't talk about it. They don't want to talk about it. It's all just buried inside. In this movie. It takes getting to the moon to finally like let that go. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, that's a fine idea. I just I I didn't realize that's what it was until the end, and I also didn't really care. Yeah. Um, I mean, like it, it's one of those things where there's no word for it. There's no. It, it's the old line of if you lose a spouse, you're a widow. If you lose a parent, you're an orphan. If you lose a child, there's no word for what you are. Um, because who knows why? Um, yeah, it's, I, I feel bad, um, saying that I was 
underwhelmed by this movie. Um, I, I like I gotta I gotta give the marketing team at Universal props because they are selling the living hell out of this movie. Unfortunately, I think they just might have oversold it, and I was I was watching something I didn't really expect. I. You know, I, I never know what to what to really expect when I'm going into these movies because we're at a point where we've told several of these space stories. You know, like we've told, like you said, we told Apollo 13. Uh, I kind of feel like we'll be talking about that later. We, we even just two years ago when when we did Hidden Figures, um, that oh, was yeah. a film that talked about the human element and the teamwork element and the challenges of the people trying to pull off this impossibly stupid trick um and this movie that just kind of seems to have all kinds of prestige and and um earmarks all over it when i came away from it i just remember thinking i am left so spectacularly cold right now and i don't feel like that's what they were going for i feel like they were actually trying to get a much more visceral reaction out of me i feel like they were trying to get me to start thinking of existential ideas that might have been going through the head of these astronauts as they're going to places that very few people will ever go ever um and i'm just i'm not there yeah i and it's frustrating too because there are moments in the movie where they set things up uh you know kyle chandler's characters deke slayton um he gets everybody in a room and he says, here's the Earth, and he draws this chalk line across two chalkboards and says, that's to scale, this is the moon, this is all of the, and we have to do this and that, it's going to be the biggest, most momentous thing ever, and then they don't really focus on much of that. And you get to the training, and it's about three minutes, and then that's over. And then it's back to watching Claire Foy walk down a hallway again. Um, like, <laughs> I, I'm actually kind of getting angry now that I think about it. There's other things <laughs> about this movie that should be good. If if you want to see, like, a lot of this is, like, Tree of Life stuff. It's just uh, weird, like, all these, uh, as as the sun is setting in the background, coming through the window, Ryan Gosling carrying his kids around and playing grab-ass with his mom and um, having dinner and... And, and all that stuff is should probably be there, but not for like forty five minutes of this movie. It's just so tedious and kind of just frustrating to me. It's um, it's I, funny you're the second person to actually uh, draw Terrence Malick threads out of this movie, and I remember you know, the the other person who <clears throat> mentioned as much was Andrew Robinson, who I went to see this movie with. And um, I, I should actually take a moment here and say we went to see it in an IMAX theater, like a proper six story high IMAX theater. And mm. if you have that option, don't do it because you are paying an extra however many dollars to <laughs> see one sequence in IMAX. And it is not the difference maker that it should be for the extra money. Um, but coming away from it, he said, yeah, I, I never would have looked at this movie and thought that they were going to give me a Malikian experience. And I remember thinking then, as I do now, I come away from Terrence Malick films with all kinds of ideas in my head and all kinds of questions and existential thoughts that I did not come away with here. So it kind of, it it shows that there is a vast gulf of room in between Malick and faux Malick. Um, That's, that's for damn sure. Um, You know, we're, we're kind of ragging on this movie, but the one thing I do have to give uh, credit to is, Ryan Gosling's performance because he plays Armstrong as a very uh, low boil middle America soft spoken 
um, you know, clean cut. Like you could probably shoot pool on his on, on his crew cut at one point. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, middle American man. And yep. the thing about Gosling is, you and I both know that is one charming dude. Mm-hmm. So to see him dial all of that back and become something much more introverted, that actually that can't be easy. No, I I agree with that. That's like that's like the one thing I really liked about this movie. I mean, uh, was Gosling's performance. He's so stoic all the time, um, and it's it's almost what makes he's not emoting all that much, and that's what makes it even more interesting to watch his face. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the way he handles everything is just straight face, do paperwork, look at the you know look at the floor. Intensely, intensely, um, something about the way he does kind of nothing is is more. Uh, I don't know how to explain it, but less is more. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I get that feeling from. And you're right. Usually he's super charismatic and charming, and um, here he's just he borders on dickhead a lot. <laughs> I know. I know. Buzz Aldrin is portrayed as the dickhead in this movie, but is he ever? Yeah, Ryan Gosling's character, like, the one domestic scene uh, that I really do like is the night before he leaves, mm-hmm. and his wife, you know, yells at him and says, you are doing this, you're going to sit down with your boys, and you're going to talk about it. And they sit down at the the table, and all of his answers are like he's answering some sort of college, like, are you coming back, Daddy? And he's like, well, the plan is to come back. And, like, he just answers in such a, like, he's sitting in a college uh, classroom answering a question from a professor or or maybe somebody from the media rather than his own kids like yeah. he's, he comes across as heartless even though we know he's not yeah we we saw him like two or three scenes earlier give this huge press conference right where his answers are very uh clearly rehearsed and clearly thought out and everything like that and uh buzz aldrin's actual answers are a little bit more off the cuff and a little bit more dickish but yeah then two scenes later he's like his arm is twisted to talk to his kids about the realities of that. He may not be coming back and he's still giving it the same way that he did in this, in this, uh, in this press conference. Yeah. You yeah. Know? He, I, I don't know if that's, is that part of his like losing his daughter? Would he be the same? Maybe yeah, not. Like maybe, maybe he's purposely being standoffish cause he won't come back. Like he gives his one son just a handshake and a look and he goes away. There's no hug. Yeah. It's just yeah, standoff. Um, if you're not attached to me, maybe it won't be that. I don't know. It's it's a good scene. It's I mean, a good scene. It's, it is. It, like, it's weird because early on in the film, when he goes back to work after the death of his daughter, one of the um, like, like one of the bureaucrats who is trying to assess which of the astronauts are going to be put into the, the Gemini program to possibly be an Apollo astronaut, they specifically ask him, they say, do you think the death of your daughter would affect you in the training and execution of this mission? And after a moment or two, his answer is, I don't see how it can't, mm-hmm. which, you know, everybody in the room is thinking, yeah, of course, like, there's no way you're just going to be able to, oh, no, I can shut all that down. I've got the focus. I've got the drive boss. Put me in. But then that's exactly what he does. He, he is so remote through the whole movie. It's, it's really fascinating performance that doesn't have enough else around it, propping it up to really kind of give it the goods. I, I think that's the thing with this movie. I'd be fine if it's, you know, we're never going to get a whole lot out of Neil in terms of emotion, but everybody else has got to be burning at like nine. Well, that brings up my next 
point of contention here is that this cast is terrific. Mm-hmm. I, I really, and I bet I can think of one thing that, that kind of maybe chapped your ass a little bit. Um, but I was, I'm looking through the cast. I'm like, holy shit! You got, you've got Shea Wiggins, you've got Syrian Hines, um, you've got Claire, Claire Foy, Foy yeah. um, and all of these Kyle Chandler, and none of them are really used at all. And the one that I feel like bugs you would be the Patrick Fugit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I mean, I did, I did make a make a bad joke as I was leaving and say, "Huh, he got all that way into NASA, and then just when he died, he was almost famous." Um, <laughs> <Good> <laughs> um, I, I was like, so excited to see him because yeah. I don't see him in much, and I thought he was really good in this. Like, I yeah. liked watching him, and and then they, and then he's gone. Like, why'd yeah. you cast him in that? I don't know that role. Um, Shea Wiggum, kind of the same thing. So Lucas Haas is in this, and he's like barely in the frame most of the time. You see him look up. I don't think he has more than like three lines. This is the, the third guy in the capsule going to the moon for the first time. Mm-hmm. I, I that throwaway character. Plus, he's Lucas Haas. I haven't seen him in, I don't know, since Brick. Give him some stuff to do. <laughs> he's got like ten. He's got like a ten second park at the beginning of Inception. But yeah, Christopher Nolan hasn't been using him very much lately. I, I, I don't. I don't get it. I mean, like you say, this cast has nothing to do except to sit around and like to sit around and like run exercises and sporadically just shoot the shit, but never in a way that gives you any personality in any of them while they are flanking somebody who has so little personality. Um, it's, it's, it's a strange, strange approach to this whole story that, as I say, we know the end. We, we know exactly how the end is going to go. Um, even if like, you know, a lot of the people who are going to see it weren't there at the time, we know, the difficulties that they're going to face and everything like that. So you need to give us enough in the run-up that, that we do matter. Um, you know, like speaking of the supporting cast, so Claire Foy as Janet uh, Armstrong has quite a bit going on, but she doesn't have that much really to do. Um, I'm going to touch back on the wives when we get to the other side because there's something interesting, I think. But Claire Foy... Uh, she's she's an actor who I'm still kind of new to because I didn't watch a whole lot of The Crown. Um, I'm really curious to see what she's going to do with the next Dragon Tattoo movie. Um, she plays this amazing counterpoint to, to Neil Armstrong in a lot of mission in a lot of moments. And my favorite moment in this whole thing is when her so she's following these missions on this speaker box and her speaker feed gets gets cut off the first sign of actual trouble and what does she do she marches straight down to nasa and she's like turn that shit back on right now mm-hmm. and when um kyle chandler when deke Sta- slayton tries to tell her we know what we're doing it's okay she just tears him a new one she goes no it's not okay this is the craziest thing that, we, that anybody in history has ever tried to do and you're trying to tell me like you've got it all under control i don't i'm i'm accepting that you had do not have it all under control but i'm gonna watch you while you do it turn that shit back on and it's just it's a really powerful moment unfortunately it's kind of one of the very few powerful moments she's given and that yeah, to me I, I, seems so strange. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I really like that scene too, because it's. I think you said she's not given much to do, um, and that's true. And then, so focus on those moments where there where she is given stuff to do. Kathleen Quinlan in Apollo 13. She's not in it that much, but the yeah. scenes that she is in are wonderful. Mm-hmm. And 
where she is given something to do. And I, I think that's what's going on here with Claire Foy. When she's given something to do, something that's important that we care about too and it's integral to the story, um, it's great. When it's her just like, I don't know, playing grab ass with her kids, it's not as interesting. But when yeah. she actually has things to say to the media, I, I even when she's um, kind of hobnobbing with some of the other NASA wives, mm-hmm. I think she says a couple interesting things things um when she's sitting on the park bench with the lady and she talks about i i married neil because i wanted a normal life Mm -hmm. um and her friend says well my you know i married a dentist or my friend married a dentist to to have a normal life um and every day she calls me up and says she wished she didn't so like it it, it, grass is always greener maybe um but that, that was an interesting thought i think yeah, I mean, yeah, th- that's that's the thing. I kind of wanted more from from Patricia and from um, from Janet. I mean, you know, they're they're. It's uh, listen. It's the 1960s, and unfortunately, it's not a place where women in America had a whole lot going on in terms of their day to day. It was, you know, it was just basically keep the home going, which I'm sure was complicated in its own way, and and had a lot of demands on it. So give them an outlet to express some of that. And especially once we lose one of those astronauts and she's a widow like that, that, that I don't know how much they would have talked about that, but it's fiction. Just make it up. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and express some of this stuff that maybe they would have they wish they'd expressed at the time, um, you know, and don't just have Claire Foy wandering around looking at us with her huge blue eyes and, you know, seeming concerned all the time. Give her just. Just a teeny bit more. We know she can handle it. We've seen her on The Queen. We know she does amazing things. So this is now the third feature film by Damien Chazelle. He won the Oscar for La La Land. And while I would never be the kind of person who says, okay, so hey, let's go out and see the new Chazelle film tonight. I don't think he's that kind of a brand. I'm not sure he ever will be. Um, The one thing I am surprised at is that his other films... Uh, are all about frustration at a process. When you look at La La Land and, you know, Ryan Gosling's character trying to, you know, make a go of being a jazz musician and Emma Stone's character trying to make a go of being an actress. When you back up to Whiplash and you've got Miles Teller's character trying to pursue this dream of playing percussion for, for a jazz master, there is always this sense of you know, knowing what you want to do and just being so pissed off and fed up and borderline like angry at the steps it takes to get there. And I didn't get that with this, with this movie. Like this has got to, looking at actually the, what NASA had to go through to get a man onto the moon, not even taking into the fact that they had Russia breathing over their shoulder and basically beating them to every line the real sense of frustration I feel was really missing from a Damien Chazelle movie this time around. I I don't know if you noticed that as well. Yeah. I mean, all of the quote unquote frustration, I guess would only be from like the deaths that happen throughout. Other than that, it's just a guy kind of part of it. Like you said, is we know what's going to, we know it's going to happen, but it's just a guy, at least to me on the surface, it's just a guy going through the motions to get there. Yeah. There's every three, okay, we're going to skip ahead two years and now he's training here. And then now there's two years have gone by. Now he's given the green light. Now two years have gone by and they're going up in the shuttle. Like, yeah. 
There's well, every no once in a while we get struggle. the public talking about the cost, which I mean, really and truly, that is a legit conversation. As somebody who even does believe this was worth the cost, that is something like I wasn't alive at the time. I can't imagine what people were saying about how many dollars were getting thrown around and how many people were dying to do this. I mean, that is a really valid conversation that's not given a whole lot of actual consideration except for people mm. continuing to ask it in terms of the cost there's no ever there's there's never an answer that's longer than one sentence in terms of the cost and i mean that's the thing the other movies the cost is time and stress and you know connection this movie it's what is the cost like what have you what is this worth it um mm. in the other movies again we feel like they are doing what they are put on the earth to do and we don't necessarily get that with this movie, which is weird. On top of that, this is, I'm sure we can both agree, this is the biggest movie that Damien Chazelle has tackled to date. And for the most part, it seems to come with this weird lack of scope. Um, it every- feels, it, it, it's, I think I agree. It's the biggest, but it feels the cheapest. It's so claustrophobic. It seems to want to give you this visceral experience, which at one moment it does. When they're in, I can't remember if it's the Gemini 9 program, the one where they're in the lamb and it and, and they almost lose it and they almost spin out. Oh, yeah. Okay. That was a good scene. Yeah. 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 They, I mean, that's an amazing scene. And that scene, you're really all of a sudden just kind of like you're feeling for them because you can sense this. Basically, it's like a friggin amusement park ride gone wrong right like they're they're Mm -hmm. spinning so fast and they may just be lost into space that scene actually has some good claustrophobia that kind of adds to the tension the most of the rest of the time though it feels like we're talking about huge undertakings and gigantic you know test test areas and whatnot and i always seem to feel like i'm watching it through the window of my phone we never seem until we really until we get to the moon. We never really back up and get to the size of all of this, which is really strange choice. Yeah, I I agree. I, to me, look, I get the idea of um, wanting to portray claustrophobic, especially in those little tiny capsules that they were in for just hours, if not days, on end. But it, it was so uninteresting cinematically speaking like you said you went and saw this in IMAX yeah i i what's the point yeah. um <laughs> all it is is extreme close ups of people's faces which you know depending on the actor and the the character is interesting or not interesting shots of dials and a whole lot of shaky cam yeah like, there's not I, I can't believe i can't imagine this budget for this movie was too terribly high because like there's not a lot of special effects shots all the shots are like out a window and it's some clouds that's and, it you're not I mean, seeing anything yeah and the, the crazy thing is the same way that it's not emotional enough it's also not visceral enough i was taken out of of the theater yeah. time and time and time again i was like there were so many there's so many other films that kind of try to do what this film is doing um and and put you in a cockpit or put you in a race car and i was like i don't feel like, i still don't feel like i'm in there i feel like i'm in i'm looking in that right. window it's I don't so need strange. a. I don't need a lot of big special effects and booms and explosions and cool spaceships, but I do want to like have a sense of what's going on. Mm-hmm. And all I am is in this cockpit for five minutes, shaking around. Yeah, and maybe that's what they felt, and that was his intent. But that's not interesting as a no. film viewer. I don't no. think. 
No, no, not at all. Um, I mean, you know, the one thing I do want to kind of give it props for is it really does pay a lot of attention at the very least to the recreation of everything. Um, you know, this film, it, it, this film is really stylish and, and when it is on the ground, it's very handsome. Um, everybody looks great. All the clothes, all the rooms that they're in have that kind of, you know, cold war era, um, just bland enough kind of thing going on. Their homes yeah. are all, you know, they've got those like formica tables and, and that kind of thing. Um, so I mean, at the very least, I got to give this movie a little bit of credit in terms of its look. Uh, in terms of the look, yes. In terms of the way that look is shot, I I didn't like it. Yeah. I didn't like that constant handheld. It's it's some it's on somebody's shoulder who's constantly yeah. like shuffling around and moving. I, it just like put this thing on a tripod, man, and you'll capture <laughs> the stuff a lot better. Yeah. What about like we we let we let off this conversation by talking about how you're really into a lot of the NASA stuff. What about even just the the recreation of a lot of this tech and a lot of the the actual environments that they were in and the these shuttles and these rockets that kind of thing janet has that line of your boys making things out of balsa wood and Mm -hmm. that that was kind of the thing that i did take away from this film is looking at a lot of this stuff it really does seem like a lot of it was matchsticks and chewing gum that they they they're like okay yeah this will hold um you know Mm -hmm. like it, it i think they actually were trying to underline how a lot of that stuff they they were kind of making a lot of that up as they were going along. Yeah. There's a scene, like, I think as they're landing on the moon, some alarms go off, and he's yeah. like, oh, that's a 1202. What's that? Well, I don't know. Call <laughs> call NASA. So they call, you know, Houston, what's yeah. a 1202? And they go, oh, don't worry about it. And so they just turn it off. And then it happens again, and they're like, I don't know what that is. Yeah. Uh, so, there, yeah, there's a lot of just making it up as you go along. Can you um, imagine that shit, though? Like, if OnStar went off in your car, and OnStar said, yeah, don't worry about this alarm. You'd be like, no, the engine light is on! <laughs> <laughs> something. It's got to be something. No, I don't <laughs> Also, the fact that it's one alarm number 1,202, that's yeah. how many things could possibly go wrong. <laughs> that's kind of interesting, too. Oh, um, man. Yeah, but... I, that's, I mean, I hate to keep bringing it back to Apollo 13, but in that, there's that scene in Apollo 13 where he just, like, spreads everything out on the table and says, all right, here's all of those stuff that those guys have up there. Yeah. Now make this giant circle fit into this tiny square with yeah. using this stuff. Only this, yeah. And that's great. That's kind of what you're talking about. There's not a whole lot of those kind of scenes in this at all. No. No, yeah, that, that's... And I mean, like, that was the thing. Like, I like... I'm a problem solver. You know, I like seeing the methodology. I like seeing the steps. And that, that wasn't really in this movie. It, I, I feel like this movie actually wanted us to do a lot of the lifting for it. And it didn't give us anything else to focus on while we were lifting. It's such a strange experience for a big budget prestige picture. This is not what I expected at all. It's not bad, but it's really not as good as it should be or certainly as it wants to be. Right. I, I mean... We were we're sitting there, my wife and I are sitting there watching it, and I'm like, there's only like 20 minutes left of this movie, and they haven't even left for the moon yet. Yeah. Like, if you're expecting stuff on the moon, be prepared to be super disappointed. Yeah. Yeah, the eagle has landed, and seen. Uh-huh. And then you get, yeah, you get there, and it's shots of his mask. Yeah. And that's it. 
I mean, it's funny because when I was looking at the shots of his mask, I was thinking to myself, oh, that's neat. They took out the reflection of the cameras. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I thought of that, too. That, yeah, that, yeah. That's what I'm getting fixated on. I'm seeing this concave, like, 180 degree shot of the moon landscape. And I'm thinking in my head, oh, I can't see the lights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, that's, I don't think that's what he's going for in that no. moment. Oh, no. man. Was there we all else? know. We all know Kubrick shot all the moon landing I, stuff. I, I, I was, I was wonder, I was wondering if they were able to get the same set. Um, was there anything <laughs> else about this movie that really jumped out? Um, I, it's, I, I feel like we're wailing on this movie, and I, I, I don't get me wrong, I kind of feel like it's a movie that needs to be taken down a few pegs. But was there anything else that jumped out for better or for worse that we haven't brought up yet? I didn't really like the score. That sort of. I was actually uh, okay with the score. It's, the music it's, box ballerina. Yeah, I mean, and, it's uh, you can tell it's the La La Land guys again. Yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Um, <laughs> this, this I wasn't, Chazelle has a type. Uh, I guess it fits those, like, the the domestic scenes pretty well. Yeah, but other it's, times, yeah. it's weird. It's a, it's a score. I've come across this now and then. It's a score that would play well on its own, but, like, in the context of this movie doesn't feel like it quite fits. I think I, I, I remember feeling that back with... Um, the hours back in the day, that really bombastic, melodramatic Philip Glass score. It was, it was when I listened to it on its own, it was gorgeous, but in the context of the movie, it didn't seem to fit. Right. I forgot about that. It's been a long time, but yeah, you're totally right about that. Well, we end every uh, matinee cast uh, with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from this movie and keep, you would. Uh, Andrew James, uh, you know, it just it seems like we want to just kind of let First Man go away. But if you could take something from it before it goes away, what would be your souvenir? I was watching for the souvenir while I was viewing the film. Hmm. Um, and it was a struggle to find something. <laughs> I want the – so a lot of people ha- or bars or whatever will have the uh, the mechanical bull. Okay. I want the giant, like gyroscope thing. That seems like a <laughs> either a really good idea or a really bad idea to pull out at parties. The giant, <laughs> like I'll take a swing at that thing, and then you just pass out and see how long you can <laughs> see how long you can stay conscious. I want one of those in my man cave. It's it sounds like a challenge, like one of these things. Like if you can stay awake in it for four yeah. minutes like you get you get to drink free for a week <laughs> right exactly <laughs> you know um okay well you could have that uh I'll, I'll let you keep that um i think my souvenir would be i really like the uh i really like those sunglasses that they had the uh that they had all the astronauts in oh, I, I, i've kind of got a thing for aviator glasses they don't look good on me either but i just i love the look on them um so i would love a pair of those i'm sure ray-ban is making money bringing them back and selling them in conjunction with this movie um but that would be my souvenir like just so i could pretend to be an astronaut for five minutes those are um, always super cool right like scott glenn tommy lee jones yeah. whenever those guys are wearing those yeah, things they it's always badass. badass exactly uh well we rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars andrew james what are you giving damien chazelle's first man uh one and a half wow yeah. um i'm giving it a two and a half i think it's okay i think it's I think it's worth seeing, but not worth paying for. Um, I think it like it barely succeeds, um, and and some of these gaps will fill in a little bit later. But I don't think it's very good. I certainly think it's better than you do. Um, yeah. Well, to, to clarify, I don't think it's like a complete abortion of cinema. I just I was you just, you think profoundly. Yeah. Yeah. I was profoundly disappointed. Yeah. And, and so my score is a lot lower. Plus. Like we mentioned, the marketing for this 
is not what the movie is. Like, maybe if I was in a different mood and I knew exactly what I was going into, it would be a little better, but I still think it's super disjointed and not particularly emotional or interesting either, so... I mean, just on paper, you tell me that you're going to tell the story of the Apollo 11 mission. Like, you know, I'm walking into that thinking you're starting on a three and go up from there. Exactly. Right? You know, and, and so that's the thing is to really miss. It's not just that you're you're missing the mark. It's you're st- you, were, you were starting with a B plus and or like you were starting with a C plus and working your way up. It's like, no, no, no. You couldn't even get to the bar. All right. Let's rethink yeah. this. Hey, maybe you think we're wrong. Maybe you think this movie is way better than we're getting a credit for. Or maybe you think it's an absolute <laughs> abortion as <laughs> Drew says, um, and that we're being far too kind. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA, or Facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Damien Chazelle's First Man? We are going to take a quick break and come back with uh, hopefully some better movies on the other side. Come on back after this and uh, we'll talk about some other stuff. We're back. He's Andrew James. I'm Ryan McNeil. It's at MatineeCast208. We've been talking about First Man, and I kind of feel like this time on the other side, we're going to talk about some things that make us feel a whole lot better than this movie <laughs> left us feeling. Uh, get us going, buddy. What was? Uh, what do you think would be further reading slash better reading when people come away from this movie? Um, one of the... One of the Criterion films that's out there is a, is a movie called... It's a documentary about the moon landing called For All Mankind. Really? Um, I, th- I think now here's the thing though I'm gonna transition really quickly I actually don't remember that one very well but I saw in 2007 I want to say there was another documentary called in the shadow of the moon yeah in the, so in the shadow of the moon it, it has all these interviews from all these guys that were alive at the time Buzz Aldrin and I think Michael Collins and I don't know whoever all and it just gives their perspective and all of the things that they had to go through uh Everything that should have been in First Man is in this documentary called In the Shadow of the Moon. I think Neil Armstrong, funny enough, is the only one that didn't participate in the interviews. Yeah, it is kind of weird. And I don't remember why. There was like a reason he didn't want to be part of it. Maybe he is just this. I'm sure to a certain degree he is this really reserved, you know, middle American, humble guy who at this point, 50 years later, is probably just tired of talking about it. Yeah, they could. Well, I mean, he's not with us anymore. But yes, probably yeah. was at that at that time. That was two thousand seven. I think he died in like eleven or twelve. Um, and yeah, he probably just is like, you know what? There's enough on this stuff. I've given my opinions. And if he's anything like he is in the in the way Gosling portrays him, that's probably true. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, that's. I mean, that that's the thing is a lot of times when you get to a lackluster movie that's based on true events. Usually there's a good documentary out there about the true events that that's, that's well done. Um, with, course, within the shadow of the moon, it's, it's well done. It's in terms of like giving you information, yeah. but I remember it being really exciting too, almost like a fictional retelling of the thing. Like all of the, all of the deaths are there, the, hmm. the, the fire in the, in the cockpit that happens. Yeah. Um, it's all delved into scientifically, technically, but also on an emotional and exciting level. It was a really fascinating, 
almost edge of your seat documentary. Hmm. I mean, yeah, the, like when you put it that way, it, it sounds like it really does get into the those those emotional gaps that we talked about. Um, so I'll, I'll definitely have to go looking for that now. I probably I should have seen it by now already. This movie's like eleven years old already. I probably should have. For some reason, I thought I had. Did did Tom Hanks do one of these as well, or am I imagining? Yeah, that? that's all. That's on my list too. He did that HBO series from the Earth to the Moon. That's what I'm thinking of. Okay. Um, I don't remember if that was like. I think I watched it in college yeah. or something, or I don't remember if it was really good or just kind of okay. I, I really don't remember. Yeah. Well, I mean, my my first thought with this movie was it's kind of a gimme and i thought to myself if they are going for the visceral reaction of uh, you know in in first man if they are going with putting us in the seat and making us feel what it's like and making us feel the panic and trying to make us uh, worry for something where we know the outcome let me go to a movie where i actually did worry about the outcome and i actually did feel a lot of the tension and that kind of thing um even going back just a few years to gravity we did a full conversation um five years ago now um man time flies um about gravity and and that movie and you know every time that somebody tries to come away from something like this and say oh it was just a gimmick of one long shot or oh it was just a gimmick of you know sending sandra bullock like flying around in this little like you know torture chair whatever i I come back and i say yes but it executed at every turn and eventually you're going to try to do it again and try to do it again and you're going to see just how technically proficient that movie was that was another movie that won best director for alfonso cuaron and everything not just about it being a technical exercise but about it being an emotional experience and a visceral experience is all right there in the final product and i feel like that movie i feel like the movie dials back a little bit now five years later because you can't see it on a big screen like that was a movie that I was I, that was a movie where I was pinned in my seat, and I actually saw it in the same theater that I saw First Man in, and I believe that in that one it was because it was all about this emotional core and about this reaction of feeling what Sandra Bullock's character was going through. Yeah, that I agree. That was one I saw it one time in IMAX 3D, and I don't think that I would ever watch it again because, which maybe is a problem for the movies. Like studio that they're not going to sell as many <laughs> Blu-rays because yeah. it's clearly like it's got to be in the most top five movies that you have to see on a big of as big of a screen as possible. But yeah, that was one huge big roller coaster ride. Sure, it was all fiction and just fun, but you have this connection to these characters almost immediately. Uh-huh. Um, and I mean, the fact and, that it's fiction actually helps you, right? Because you don't know if she's going to make it back alive right. or not. You don't yeah. think, like, you, you think to yourself, this is a big studio movie. They're not going to kill her because my God, like how nihilistic is that? But at the same time, you start thinking, well, maybe they will kill her. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. It's definitely edge of your seat. What's going to happen? Yeah. What else you got? What, um, I mean, we talked about, Apollo 13, and I'm not going to get into it that much, but it it, it gets into the, we know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. yet it is still riveting and scary, and every time, I think maybe they're not going to get back this time. <laughs> I've seen the movie 15 <laughs> times. It's it's factual history, right? and right. I still, there's it's this still little affecting. thing in the back of my head going, oh, that's going to be tough. How are they going to overcome this? Um, it happens every time, and it's it's just the thing that first man is lacking um but i feel like it's still the analog like these two films are really 
as different as they are, are kind of similar in what they're what they're going for. First Men really hangs itself on the fact that it's about Neil. Apollo being about the mission can broaden out a little bit and be about the actual challenge of that. So you've got scene after scene after scene of both on the ground and in and in the lamb of them working the problem and of just, you know, having all these people trying to figure out a moment where failure literally is not an option. And yes. I think that's where that movie succeeds is it gives everybody more to do than this movie that really hangs itself on the first thing. And it still manages to balance the domestic stuff. Like I said, the it's got Jim Lovell's mother. It's got uh, the wives are all have seem to have important roles, or at least that you care about. Um, the the perception at home is um, about like how the people, the American people, were just bored with going to the moon at this point, but now they're riveted. Like all of the things that First Man does and spends way too much time on. Apollo 13 recognizes those things, gives you food for thought, and then moves on to yeah. the guys back in the cockpit. And it's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and and it's held up rather well, actually. Every time I go back to it, I kind of think to myself, you know, maybe I've outgrown this movie. And then I, I, you know, I'm in it for about 10 or 15 minutes. And it's like, no, no, I've, I'm totally on board with this movie. This yeah. is an amazing I've, movie. It's probably Ron Howard's best movie. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's been trying to eclipse it ever since. Yeah. Um, so another movie that I thought about when I thought another companion film to this thing is I thought about the era itself and about um, kind of obsession with a singular question. And I thought about, and I'm sure this is going to get you going because this is kind of a row three totem. Um, I, I, thought about, say. I thought about Zodiac. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I thought about the look of that movie i thought about these you know the scope of san francisco i thought about the obsession of that Hall character trying to to get that one thing they say it's kind of similar to how neil is just kind of going about this one thing that he really wants to do and both of them feel like it's something that will have ramifications that will have a greater effect on their community around them, both, you know, just in terms of San Francisco and Zodiac and in terms of um, the the world itself in, in First Man. And I feel like it's kind of a, again, it's, it's this story of obsession done a little bit better. Yeah. I, funny, I thought, and it, the, the same analogy holds true. I thought you were going to say JFK. Oh, same. Both of these, the, both of the characters, the Jake Gyllenhaal character in Zodiac and Kevin Costner in JFK, totally for for decades or a decade or so, like almost abandon their family mm-hmm. in this quest for getting the answer of who killed somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's that's that's it's a good analogy for First Man, where he's just so focused on this thing. Like, I mean, with, with both of them, with, with, with Armstrong, with Hall's character in Zodiac, do you think they talked about anything else for 10 years? Like, these guys must have been really fun at parties. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're, so you're saying after the fact, like, story. I mean, during, first of all. During. The, the, dur- during oh, yeah. the time that they were fixated either on the moon landing or on catching the Zodiac killer, I can't imagine that they were really <laughs> up to date on talking about anything else. Afterwards, no. they really weren't. You know, they were they were that guy whose band opened for Nirvana that one time. <laughs> so <laughs> right. it's, but I, I feel like Zodiac is, first of all, I feel like Zodiac has aged well. This movie will not. Um, I feel like, you know, similarly that I was saying that the movie at the very 
very least was handsome. The Zodiac as well is handsome in this other way. Um, and I also do feel like Zodiac also has quite a bit of scope to it. You know, we were talking about how First Man feels really claustrophobic and never really backs off to let you in on a lot of this stuff. Um, I feel like Zodiac actually backed off quite a bit and really gave you the lay of San Francisco in the late 60s, early 70s to kind of get an idea of how these things were taking place and how these lives were being affected. Definitely. I, San Francisco in that movie is kind of a character in yeah, the movie. Yeah, very much I agree. so. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any others to, to, to marry up with this? Or? Not really. I mean, if just for fun, if you wanted to go check out Operation Avalanche about oh, the yeah. guys, yeah, the guys that were filming the the fake moon landing. Right. I, by the way, I've mentioned this twice now. I am not yeah, a no, moon conspiracist. No, no, but me, I just, me neither. Me neither. It's, just, it's a funny it, joke, yeah. It's kind of fun to talk yeah. about. And that movie is um, really, really fun. It's the same guys who did, uh, I think it was The Dirties. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. Did you ever see Operation Avalanche? Uh, I think I started watching it and I kind of got distracted. So now you've kind of reminded me to put it back to the top of the stack. It's it's really good. It's okay. it's really interesting and it's uh, again it takes the the time period um, and especially if you're into filmmaking, mm-hmm. it's it's all about how do we overcome these obstacles? Like we're creating special effects because this has to look real. Um, you know, putting these guys on the moon, and uh, it has to look so good that the forever in history people will think that Kubrick did it. Yeah. Um, and there's some Kubrick stuff in Operation Avalanche. I actually haven't seen it for a while. I should go back and rewatch, but that's kind of a fun lark. Okay. You'll, you'll probably end up seeing that turn up in my letterbox feed really soon. Um, well, nice. the one thing I would actually add on as well, and um, anybody who knows me, try to contain your surprise, is a book. Um, it's um, <laughs> I would suggest people read uh, the 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 write stuff by tom wolf tom wolf oh. wrote the novel well not even the novel it's it's nonfiction. um but the the book version that the movie was then uh, adapted from in 1983 i haven't seen the movie in a long time but the book i read quite recently and the reason why i say to read the book is it actually does go quite deep in terms of their families <laughs> and the wives and life in these communities like you know you see briefly in first man how they 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 nestle all of these families together in like a, a campus right um and it's really really interesting about how these lives kind of overlapped each other how the wives learned to lean on each other um you know they would hear about bad news and it was kind of like hearing an alarm go off in a mine if you were like a, in a mining community um and it it dealt it still doesn't dive too deep into that stuff but it goes certainly deeper than first man does and it's a really great read yeah, that sounds fascinating. A lot like military communities. All the Very wives so. stick together and are there for support because they Absolutely. all are going through the same thing. So, yep. Yep. yeah. And I bet in a book form, you, yeah, you can dig a lot deeper than you can, you know, in a, in a movie. Yeah. And I mean, like some of the stuff is some of the stuff is brought up like it's it's it would be really good reading before you go into First Man if you chose to go into First Man um, because it fills in a lot of. Uh, a lot of the gaps in terms of like the, the the flight mission that he's doing at the beginning, you know, I think Chuck Yeager is in this movie for about ten seconds, and it, it kind of draws nice. him into this whole thing a whole lot more. And and it's written amazingly well. It was one of the best books I read last year, and one of those ones I thought to myself, I really should have read this a long time ago. Um, so I mean, I, it's I, it's the same as the title of the movie. It's called the right stuff. The right stuff. Yeah. Oh, yeah. cool. And it's great. I'm and it's sure, it's yeah, yeah it's longish, but it moves. It, it's it's a really good read. So. How many books are you up to this year, by the way? Uh, I started number 100 on Friday. 
Well done. <laughs> Thank Do you, you actually retain all of this stuff in your like? Absolutely not. Okay. <laughs> I retain a lot of it. I usually tell people I retain books the same way most people retain movies, which is that the really good ones stick out chapter and verse. The rest of them kind of leave me with this watercolor impression, um, and it's it, it's still it's it's a weird experience, but it's still time well spent um so don't yeah don't give me a content test because i'll pass it immediately but if you give it to me like a month later i'm screwed (laughs) so um well there we there we go that is episode 208 of the matinee cast come on back on monday november 5th for episode 209 um i'm not sure what i'm discussing quite yet there's a few movies that are making the rounds we might talk about beautiful boy uh maybe can you ever forgive me uh possibly suspiria uh there's always bohemian rhapsody uh hey if you have a suggestion let me know Andrew James uh, is not on row three anymore because row three is not on row three anymore. Uh, but you can still find him on Letterboxd and Twitter. Uh, tell people where they can follow you if they want to harass you about your first man uh, <laughs> opinions and more. Yeah, uh, mostly on Letterboxd, it's Andrew underscore James. As you mentioned, I'm on Twitter. Same thing, but I don't use Twitter that much, so you probably won't see me on there. But it's a Letterboxd is my uh, social media of choice. So. Nice. Um, and you will find a link for Andrew's letterbox feed in the show notes. My site, of course, is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can find back episodes by going to thematinee.ca slash podcasting. You can also now find them on Spotify. Really excited. Thanks to a bunch of people for already starting to listen and um, spread the word. Stitcher Radio, Google Play, Blueberry, Apple's podcast app, and the iTunes Store. Everything gives you ways to subscribe for free and get alerts when new episodes drop. Feedback on First Man or any of the uh, selections we left for the other side can be left in the comments section of the site. You can email ryan at the matinee.ca, Twitter, where I am matinee underscore CA, or facebook.com slash darkmatinee. Any final thoughts, buddy? None at this time. Is that Paddington, like, splashing around in the bath behind Yeah, he's him? entertaining himself with a pillow or something. <laughs> but, but, like, he's... in the bath? I feel no, like he's, he's just... water. That's just him growling. He wants me to take him out for a walk, so he's entertaining himself with one of his toys. All right, well, you go do that, and I'm going to go be social. For Andrew, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.